Hello, this is Dr. John Peebles. Thank you for joining me in this high-altitude conversation where we have the chance to talk to the decision-makers, the people at the top, the chairman and the chief executives who've made the decisions that affect our organisations and indeed, often our very way of life. I hope that listening to them and their thoughts as they articulate problem and solution provides something to reflect on and perhaps utilise or model in your own management style or approach. These people are recognised as our top problem solvers and the one feature they all have in common is recognised management success in organisations of substance. Our guest today is a New Zealand woman who's received a great deal of public attention while still retaining a modest and low-key attitude to her family background and commitment. An only daughter in a family of five children with a Pacific heritage, she grew up in a family environment that was not privileged and has had its share of difficulties. Indeed, this has been pointed to by some who say it's the key to her intense drive to succeed. It's almost certainly shaped her view of family, which is inclusive. At an early stage, while still in her teens, our guest decided to desert university study and get a job to earn money and marry. She applied for a role in an industry that was totally foreign to her, and she not only learned it from the ground up, but set out to dominate innovative thinking inside the space. She did that with spades. For her services to her chosen sector, she received the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2017. Having built a career inside a corporate, she took her own theories to market and started and grew not only one business, but two successively and successfully in the same sector. She is not simply seen as a successful woman, but as a successful business builder and an accomplished chief executive. She's without question a role model for any man or woman who aspires to reach the top in their chosen field. Today, our guest is Naomi Ballantyne, Managing Director and Head of Partners Life Insurance, who's been described as arguably the most experienced person in the New Zealand life insurance industry. Naomi, welcome to High Altitude, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Naomi, first of all, tell us a little bit about your background growing up, about the family, and how you envisaged life when you were at school. Well, I'm um, the only girl uh, in a family of five, so I have four brothers, two younger, two older. We were brought up in Glenfield, um, which in those days was sort of the wild west of Auckland, where uh, anyone over the other side of the bridge sort of thought it was another country. Going foreign. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, because a uh, pretty poor background, mum and dad both working class, you know, mum had to work um, before and after school and to try and um, make ends meet. Um, reasonably typical family in those days, dad drank a lot, you know, his social activity was down at the, the local pub, we played sports and, you know, the sports clubs revolved around alcohol and etc. So it wasn't that easy, but it was not that uncommon um, in those days. But um, mum was Tongan, so we had the added sort of mix of a completely different kind of culture um, than our friends, etc. that we were um, brought up in. So, um, you know, quite a, a mixed poor background, um, a little bit ostracised, um, um, big family. You Did know, you get back to Tonga at all? Family. No, I've never been to Tonga. Mum... Never? No, she left, um, felt quite bitter about it. Her father was German and had been brought up to New Zealand and died in an internment camp when she was 10 because of the war. Oh. And um, uh, she was one of 15. Um, and Nana had all these half uh, children who weren't Tongan and they weren't white and no 
no dad, no income, no nothing. So life was extraordinarily tough. And so all of the kids, as soon as they were old enough, hopped on a plane, came to New Zealand and started working to send money back to bring everybody else up. So getting out of Tonga was a massive drive for them and she refused to go back. So we took her to every other Pacific <laughs> island because she right. just loved the the beauty of and the food and all the things that she loved about the place were similar, but she just refused to go back to Tonga. So I want to go back now that she's passed away to find out where I'm from, really. Right, so you haven't explored that as yet? No, not yet. She has only just passed away. Right. Yeah. Uh, when, when, when you decided to go to university, were you the only one in the family who was yes. sort of heading in that direction? first person in, in um, my family to go to university. And um, I decided to study marine biology because Dad thought that would be a good idea. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was really good at science and maths and, you know, those sorts of things. So just, you know, Jacques Cousteau was all the rage and right. marine biology seemed like a really exciting career, but you don't take long to get into a degree and start to realise that marine biology is a calling. It's sort of 12 years um, study before you might get a job on a research boat paid next to nothing and away at sea you know, in horrible conditions, quite and I didn't really. Once I figured out what it was, I thought that's not really what I thought I would be doing in my life. So yeah. you looked around for a job? I did for two reasons. One, um, I realised that that wasn't a path I wanted to take and I needed to choose another one. And number two, I wanted to get married. Life was pretty tough at home um, with Dad's drinking. And, um, you know, I, I guess I saw marriage as a way of escaping from that and to be able to afford to get married to, you know, my very patient husband who didn't realise he was my escape route um, was uh, I needed to work. I needed to earn some money. So. Still got the same husband? I've still got the same husband. Still a good escape route? 35 years later. <laughs> so I'm not escaping from anything now. <laughs> right. And so you picked insurance or insurance picked you? It picked, well, I just, um, I looked around for a job. I didn't even know what options there were because, you know, when you come from that sort of poor background, public service type family, dad had been in and out of work a lot with his back and various illnesses and stuff like that. You don't have any career guidance. You don't know what is possible. So I, I looked for the most important job I could find, which I thought was a manager. And there was a job said management trainee insurance, and I had no idea what insurance was, but management trainee sounded like me. So I applied for it and got it because I was pretty smart. I had pretty good grades and things. So. And there was no insurance in the family, obviously. None, none. In fact, I, if you'd asked me, mum was very religious, and so in her head, insurance is like tempting fate. <laughs> Why should you get paid money when, you know, this happens because it's God's will kind of thing, which right. was such a bizarre thing. But So it was almost, I, I for a long time, um, felt like I was the black sheep of the family because I was working in you know, this terrible industry. <laughs> and so you, you, what were you doing as a, as a management trainee? As a management trainee, back in those days, they had, you know, the, the floor, which was full of big servers and processors, uh, you know, a whole computer floor, one or two dumb terminals um, spread out amongst the office. And because I was good at maths, very quickly they realised that I should do all of the calculated premium loading calculations because they were done manually and no one else knew how to do them. So it was basically, you're good at maths, you figure it out. So at 18, I was calculating risk premium loadings for an insurance company. So you got a good grounding in the basics of insurance right from the very beginning. Either that or I did it wrong for a very long time, one of those two things. So, um, but <laughs> No it repercussions from no, anybody. No, and it makes you, um, funnily enough, it makes you quite brave because you realise that 
well, there's no one else around here who can tell me whether I'm doing it right or wrong. So I just have to back myself and apply some logic and some smarts. And obviously you learn some stuff as you go along and realise that maybe what you were doing early on was wrong, but nobody's jumping up and down because there's no one better than you to do it. So Wouldn't that be one of the key functions of insurance? So it would be the pricing and the various... Well, in, in, the, in the not that many years before I started days, there was just life insurance. Um, and it was whole of life and in, uh, sort of endowment type life insurance and calculating risk premium loadings wasn't a big part of the insurance um, industry because it was really an investment industry with a bit of life insurance in it, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. I one of those yeah. endowment insurances. Ex- when it exactly. actually matured, I got enough to pay the monthly grog bill. I think that was about what it exactly. was. And, um, you know, life insurance rates are not that volatile, right? But um, then you... You know, and when I started, you started to have the more modern products, you know, TPD, for goodness sakes, and, um, you know, um, versions of disability products, et cetera. So it started to get a lot more complex in terms of calculating premiums. So, no, there wasn't a lot of uh, previous experience and they hadn't computerised it yet. So how did you get away from that particular role and move into a management side? Did it it actually become a management trainee role? In those days, it was very much you every year you might move one point of a grade and in 50 years time if you're lucky you might end up in a management position it was very old school are you being served you know kind of you 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 were rewarded for tenure right. not aptitude or or um or um capability right. so you had a lot of people who'd been there a long time in comfortable jobs that weren't going anywhere so for someone like me who got in there realized that actually I I know more than a lot of these people do and I've had to figure it out uh, that was stifling so I was one of the original move every two years person because I couldn't get promoted within the organisation because of that sort of structure. So I had to go where there was a vacancy somewhere else and demonstrate that I knew some stuff that probably they didn't either. So you picked off some other insurance companies on the way? Exactly right. So that was Guardian Royal Exchange where I started and then I went to um, NZI um, and then Fidelity Life and then ultimately a job at Sovereign. Right. Now, Sovereign, how did you get into Sovereign and what sort of role were you talking about at the time? Well, Sovereign was a startup company. Chris Coon and Ian Hendry had brought this modern thinking to New Zealand. Chris's wife was a Kiwi. That's why he came here. And they saw an opportunity to do something that wasn't the old school, old boys kind of network. Um, And they were trying to recruit people to help them start their company. Um, You know, someone practical who could actually do the stuff neither of them knew how to do because they'd been senior managers or actuaries. And um, so they advertised for an operations manager and no one experienced in the New Zealand market would apply because it was a risk and what's the startup company and we'll all run them out of town and I'm in a perfectly safe job now. And I went, what have I got to lose? There's plenty of other insurance companies if it doesn't work out. And this sounds like fun, and I was 24. I know that they would not have, <laughs> they would have not have uh, looked for a 24-year-old to to do that role for them. But right. I was the only person who applied for the job, so they didn't have any choice. <laughs> and sovereign, where did the term come from? Sovereign come from? Who who thought of that? Oh, uh, that wasn't me. So Chris and Ian um, tried to look for a name that gave some substance to their startup company. You know, right. a, a name that sounded like it had been around for a million years and might have come from the UK or. Right. You know, so they just picked a word that they thought implied, you know, a long-standing, financially strong company, given that nobody had started up a life insurance company in New Zealand. Um, So what was the focus that they were trying to drive? What niche were they trying to push into? 
Um, so two things. One, they recognised that the distribution um, structure in New Zealand was um, all tied agents. There was this hardy group of brokers who had insisted on remaining independent, who were treated like the dirt on the bottom of the shoes by all of the life companies um, at the time. So they recognised that there was a distribution channel that needed some love um, and was available because they weren't tied. Um, And the second thing was, you know, the world had moved into unit-linked, sort of investment-linked products, not this whole of whole of life where you put money in and someone does some magic in the middle and at some point, at some point in the future, you might get a return and the returns on them were appalling at the time. Um, And so they brought those modern sort of unit linked product concepts to New Zealand for the first time. So they had new product ideas and a distribution channel they saw needed loving and those were the two real focuses of them getting into the market. So they were the sales and marketing and development team and you were the operations team at the back end of the house. Absolutely. So find the systems, find the people, you know, the the um, write the policy wordings, design the brochures, um, yeah, all of those things at 24, none of which I had done before. And with just the three of you in it for a start? To start with, yeah. And, and then they added pretty quickly. So how much did it grow to? What, what size did it grow to? When I left, um, sort of 11 years later, there were over 600 staff and it was the largest company by a long shot um, in the market. And the main product is still live? Uh, the main product by the time I left was a full suite of pure risk products. So right. they had medical insurance and they had life and disability products and trauma insurance. They also did mortgages. They did investments. Um, they did the whole gamut of financial services. Was it um, in doing that, you know, we tend to look at these things as saying they start up and these people make a lot of money. But in fact, they must have injected a lot of money on the way through to build that. It must have been quite a build exercise. Yeah, I think they had to put their own money on the line in their own reputations right. um, and, you know, take a a huge pay cut compared to what they would have been earning um, in the previous businesses that they'd worked for. Um, They had to convince an awful lot of people to put their money in to back that because it takes a lot of capital to grow a company uh, to that size. So they had a lot of, you know, shareholders that were were banking on them. Um, They um, had to grow to a listing so that there was an exit strategy for those early shareholders, um, which took sort of 10 years um, for them to be able to achieve that. Yeah, they took a a huge amount of risk and they didn't get a huge amount out um, until there was, you know, the IPO and then ultimately it was bought by ASB. Um, So that's not a, this is not a short term game where you can get in and get rich quick and get out. And it's still a very well-known and recognised brand today, isn't it? It is. It is still. In fact, it's, probably the dom- is it the dominant brand yeah, today? Yeah, it's just recently been bought by AIA, so yes. um, it would be interesting to see what happens to it now. Has it re- has it changed in its substance or its thinking much in that time? Yeah, it changed quite significantly, I think, when mm. the bank bought it. Mm. I think, um, although they continued to make a success out of it, it definitely um, shrunk a bit. Um, right. uh, um, probably became less focused on independent advisors, much right. more focused on the bank channel because that was an opportunity that didn't exist right. for Sovereign prior to the bank acquiring it. So what happened at the sale when, when, when it was sold then? Where were you? Were you sitting there as I was, the chief, chief operations? Oper- I was, chief mm. operating officer. And you didn't want to go with the with the sale? Uh, I went with the sale um, for a little while. Right. Um, banks have an interesting way of viewing people. But you're saying it's different, different style? It's a different culture. Right. And I'd built the culture at Sovereign leading up to that, was known for that, right. um, for the being the driver of the culture. And then the things that were changing were things that I passionately believed in and had put in place and felt that I would be a hypocrite. Now, taking it apart and trying to convince people that 
that was the right thing to do when I didn't believe it. Right. I truly passionately believed the bank had every right to do whatever it wanted with the company it bought it, uh, but I wasn't the right person to lead that change because I, I couldn't buy into um, what it was that they were wanting to change. So right. I left. Um, I just left. I had nothing to go to. Um, I didn't have a plan. I just knew I wasn't the right person in this space and it was killing me inside for people who'd followed me there to believe I was leading them somewhere they wanted to go. So when you sat on the beach and looked out to sea, what did you decide to do next? I very quickly read, I, I actually looked for jobs and I very quickly realised no one in New Zealand in the life insurance industry would touch me Could I'd been that woman making all of their lives miserable for, you know, 10 years by taking market share off them and recruiting their best staff. It was a totally male-dominated industry It was still totally male-dominated in those days. So I was that scary person, probably threatening to most of those people in terms of if she comes right. in here, what's going to happen to me, right. uh, kind of stuff. Um, I did look in Australia, um, which was even more... <laughs> misogynist than New Zealand was um, right. at the time and they very quickly realised that I'm going to have to go further afield or if I want to stay in New Zealand then I better figure out how I'm going to how I'm going to do that. I knew I was probably the only person in New Zealand who knew practically how to build a life insurance business from scratch. Right. Um, so if I could find people that could help me figure out how to get the money and also how to how to bring advisors along with us, then starting a business was a possibility. Do the two original founders, uh, did they leave the business completely too and, and walk away? Ian and Chris, yes, mm. they did. And yeah. they, the, Not did at you, that time. They, they stayed a couple of years past right. me. They were obviously, they were obviously bound yes, into this, right. yes. But then at the end of that time, they couldn't advise you, obviously, because they, they were with the business still, were they? Yes, they were. That's right. right. Yep. So you were on your own in yep. the true sense of the word. Absolutely. So the only business you knew is insurance. Yeah, and more than on my own, actually. It was quite interesting. Um, you know, I certainly the market was giving me feedback that um, Ian Hendry, who I adored and had worked incredibly hard to try to please and had probably delivered some pretty good results in terms of for his business, um, was fairly vocal in saying she's a you know good girl, but she's never going to be able to do this on her own um, kind of thing. So that's mm. really interesting. Um, good to I see, I guess, is the kind of headset. And I guess that's a little bit about ego in terms of, well, I did it, but, you know, other people can't, right. um, or maybe not not wanting to acknowledge how much of a part, you know, I might have played uh, in that success. Who knows? But it did spur me on a little bit to um, to prove so it. So when you started to focus uh, back into the insurance thing, it was yeah. let's do it myself. So yeah. where did the idea come from? Did it? Um, well, that from me, uh, yeah. and then I had also two fellow founders. So uh, my brother Peter Lassen, right. um, because he's a technology man, and I knew that that we needed modern technology um, in order to to do something better than right. what was already available in the marketplace. Because I knew the restrictions on all of the existing players in terms of being bound to old systems, including Sovereign, which had sort of. Um, seemed to be modern um, at the time, but were very restricted in terms of the types of systems, uh, the types of flexibility that that system allowed right. us. They got bigger and more complex, and it was slowing their ability to be that fleet of foot type right. of business. So I knew that if we could do something different, we could be a lot more efficient in terms of cost effective. How did um, you define different? Did you think about, because you must have given a lot of thought to where's the position in the market absolutely. we can take it. Yeah, so we we decided that risk insurance was our only game. We weren't going to play in the investment market or the mortgage market or we were going to be experts in the risk space. Um, we were going to find um, modern systems. We were going to uh, produce product that 
was revolutionary to the market, right. something that I'd already started doing um, towards the end of Sovereign based on basically just sitting down and going, where do claims not work? Right. Where are we saying no to claims? Where are clients getting a surprise about what happens at claim time, despite what the policy wordings say and the brochures say and the advisors say, where are they getting a, a surprise and how do we close that door so that those surprises don't happen. So we figured that we had a, um, a wealth of knowledge about systems processes and claims um, that would give us an advantage over companies that may be run by bankers who, who you know, would come in without that depth of experience. Standard, and yep. Yeah, exactly yep. right. And that was a competitive advantage that we could bring to the marketplace. That left you with two gaps, didn't it? Distribution, which yes. was one, and funds, which I take it as the other. But, yep. <laughs> uh, how did you go about the Funds. capital raising? A woman that's uh, yep. probably seen as, well, I mean, someone said a leader, but some people have said a disruptor. Well, and in I've those days, <laughs> neither, right? In those days, just a good two I see, right? That's, right. Uh, you know, and the person who'd built the culture at Sovereign, but not seen as the founder right. of the company by any stretch of the imagination. So it was hard. Everybody said no. Everybody, Everybody. said no. Everybody. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, who, who, who am I? Uh, number two, what is insurance? I mean, no one knew how to value a life insurance company because it's not one plus one equals three, right? It's not... It's a service business with no assets. And a long tail yes. uh, cash flow. So what it is, is takes a lot of capital up front and then you get this wave of cash in the future, it's right? almost From about the existing 10 years premiums. or something it in is. some places to exactly, get a return on it. Exactly right. Yeah. So you get growth um, yeah. um, and you get this sort of wave of cash as you um, start to um, recoup the, the huge upfront costs. Right. Um, but that's that's not a common model and there's very few at the time companies that invested in life insurance companies and most of them were life insurance companies. So you need a key, key sort of cornerstone investor, didn't did. you? So how did yes. you find one? And- so we did a lot of knocking um, and in fact we got right down to the point where I thought this is over. There's, we've got everything else in place except for a reinsurer and a capital partner. And um, it's a, I'll tell a story. We, um, um, my two founders and I, came across a fellow in New Zealand who said, you need to go and talk to our Australian parent because this is exactly the sort of opportunity they're looking for. I'll set it all up. I'll let them know that you're coming. Give me your background information. Uh, here's the meeting date. It's in Sydney. Turn up. Do the presentation. But I'm. it'll be a rubber stamping. I know it all. We absolutely need this in New Zealand. And, and I was down to my last sort of savings that I was prepared to eat into before I had to go and get another job, right? Um, and so I paid for it tickets to go to Sydney and we booked into, you know, the cheapest motel and we went down at midnight because it was cheaper and all of that kind of thing. And we turned up to this meeting with our presentation all ready to go PowerPoint presentation in our flash clothes and beautiful building glass and brass and, you know, huge amounts of money because it was a venture capital. It was sort of a investment management um, company. And we turned up and they weren't expecting us. The receptionist didn't have us in the diary. None of the execs knew we were coming. The guy in New Zealand hadn't organised anything. So they ran around because we'd come from New Zealand and set up a room with no PowerPoint. Uh, and there was four or five people there looking like they'd rather be anywhere else but there because they weren't expecting the meeting, including fortunately the CEO. So we got into our presentation, we got halfway through and the CEO stood up and went, are you talking about life insurance? We went, uh, yes. And he said, oh no, I hate life insurance. My mother's sister's husband had a claim to kind get out. So we were devastated. That was it. It was, it was over. So we went back to the room because we were flying out later on. Um, and, and we're sitting in my room and no one's talking and dream's over. And I switch on my cell phone um, and there's a message on the phone which I listen to. It says, Naomi, this is Girling Globali. 
who were sovereigns reinsurers, who I had had quite a good relationship with on the operational front. Um, we read an article you wrote recently in a, a magazine about the opportunity to start a new life insurance company in New Zealand. Um, and we're really keen to talk to you about that. So next time in Sydney, could you give us a call? So I rang the back and I said, well, actually, we're in Sydney today. and We could change our flights and fly back tomorrow. If tomorrow would suit, we can come and do a presentation. We've got one ready. And they said, oh, great, because tomorrow we've got, you know, the head guy from Germany over and we've got this big exec meeting. So we'll set aside a couple of hours and you can come in and do a presentation there. So we changed the flights and got back in the same clothes and went off to this meeting. You couldn't be more different, right? There's 28 people around this massive boardroom table and you've got audio visual equipment for Africa and, you know, our presentation looks sweet up on the, on the slideshow. And we go through it and at the end of it, before anyone else talks, the German CEO stands up and says, well, I don't know what anyone else around the table thinks, but I think we're your reinsurance partner. Um, and reinsurance provides a lot of working capital uh, right. in terms of advancing you commissions so you can pay upfront commissions. So it's a big deal. It's not capital, which would make you solvent. It's but advanced cash it's, flow. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But it's, it's a big win, right? So we were on a high. We still didn't have any capital um, from anyone other than the three of us. Um, and so we, you know, sort of hopped on the plane, felt quite excited about that, and then got to um, New Zealand and went to get the bags. And I turned on my phone and there was a message on the phone from a company called Hallaby, which I thought was a meat company, but turns out it was ex-Renouf Corporation, um, an investment company. And they said, we've been reading this article that you wrote and we're interested in getting into financial services. So if you have some time today, would you be able to come and present to our board meeting? <laughs> and so we diverted and off we went, same clothes, into their um, meeting room and um, did our presentation. And then they said, thanks very much. We have to be honest, we were considering investing in another business, another life insurance company. We just wanted to see what the competition was up to. But we think we've changed our mind and we'd like to be your cornerstone shareholder. And so out of absolute devastation, um, Club Life was was born. And was that, did you need other investment on top of that? Well, we had all of us individually right. investing and they needed to inject further capital as we right. grew. Right. Um, and we had projected that out for them, um, but I, I think they discounted everything and went, nobody's going to grow that fast. So uh, it's probably not going to but it did. Yeah, and it did. And so within sort of two years, they were wanting out. Um, not out in the sense of give us our money back, out in the sense of we don't want to put any more money in, so you right. need to go and find um, other shareholders. So when you got the um, when you got the, the cornerstone one and you got the, uh, got the thing going, the date was roughly when? Uh, 2001. Okay. Yeah. And you hit the ground with the first products... In that in two thousand and one, we did. I think we um, launched in August two thousand and one. Right. Um, and yeah, that and was growth a, rates. Growth rates we thought were magnificent. I mean, we wrote one million dollars of um, new business annual premium in our first year, and then it sort of uh, multiplied significantly. Till right. I think when I left, we were um, after nine years, we were writing twenty eight, twenty nine million new business premium, which seemed to be an awful lot right. uh, and an awfully fast trajectory. I only say seem now in hindsight, given the success rates that we've had with Partners Life, um, which just make that all of that pale and insignificant. But it was certainly. Um, not expected. It was a, considered an, a, an, an extremely good success story. So, right. and people in the company by the time at the time, the end of the nine years, how many did you have? About two hundred and fifty. So it's a significant growth. A significant it? growth. Yeah, right. and we were we were very efficient for what was available at the time. So we did have that sort of right. next level um, 
modern systems and technology. So how did you extract yourself? Uh, what happened? Um, ING had acquired Halibis stake in the business and also acquired bought the bought so 100% it came in of the business through the, share, through the cornerstone shareholder really or one of the cornerstone funders. Yes, they do. Yeah. That's right. And I sought them um, because I could see that they were a huge global life insurance player, but they had no life insurance um, presence in New Zealand on investment arm. So it was the best opportunity I thought to have a effectively an owner that was vested in life insurance, but right. without interfering with the way in which we ran the life insurance business, which is exactly what happened. So working with that ING framework was fantastic. We had that support and the capital and the and the long term focus, um, without the kind of um, management um, overlay that you would otherwise have got. Um, so all of our staff continued to thrive and we continued to grow. So the transition into today's company, how yeah. did that occur? Um, so ING got itself into trouble globally, and in Australia and New Zealand, I could see that ANZ was going to acquire the balance of the ING stake because they were already... Back a, to bank a, ownership a short, again. Yeah. And um, it hadn't happened. It wasn't, um, hadn't been confirmed at that. I just could just see it happening. Right. And the company had a good management team, um, um, in place, so I didn't think it was going to suffer too much if I wasn't there, and I just thought I'd had enough of uh, running life insurance companies. <laughs> so <laughs> I wanted to do a small family advisory business, actually, right. um, based on cash flow, so not upfront commissions, long-term um, trial commissions, because I thought there's a nice, comfortable way to get some decent long-term cash flows right. um, in the future and without the stress of you know building and running um, companies, which I'd been doing for 20-odd years by then. It is. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, it's stressful, obviously, isn't it? How does it impact on you when you, when you look on it? Um, it's a lonely job. Mm. It's a really lonely job. You you take all of the stress, you know, of those nights where you think it's all over. You know, when Halibis decided that they didn't want to put any more money in, they told the market because they thought that that was a way of flushing out a new investor. It would have actually... Nice they told you first. Well, it was a way of telling your competitors that your cornerstone shareholder wanted out so they could run around and tell all your distributors and everything that you were going under. So it tanked market share for a period of time. Um, and, you know, those are long and lonely nights when you're running around trying to find a, mm. uh, an investor and in that kind of space without giving the company away mm. at some ridiculous price for the sake of the founding investor, you know, the, the founding shareholders that had come along um, for the ride with us. Um, so that was a, a very dark and lonely place um, for a long period of time. And there's no one to talk to. Right. Because you start talking to people who need to believe that you're leading them and it's going to be okay. Mm. And this is a temporary blip and we've got a plan and this is what we're going to do. You can't share with them how scared you are mm. um, and how terrified you are. You can't share with anyone because you don't want the market to know that either. And, and you don't actually know the plan at that stage Exactly either. right. Um, it's a very dark and lonely place. And it happens more often than you think mm. in even very successful businesses um, where you think you may have invested or convinced everybody to invest in something right. that now looks like it's not going to work or not going to deliver, etc. You know, there's a lot of people that input into decisions. There's only one that pays the price um, if it doesn't work out, if you're a good CEO yes. and, you are, and you are protecting your organisation. When you climb to the top of the mountain, it's a great climb, but at the top you're very lonely. It is lonely mm. and, and stressful. So you either cope with that and thrive in that environment, even though it's painful at the time, right. uh, or you don't. And I, I just happen to be, maybe from my background, you know, dealing with the sort of verbal abuse that comes with alcohol abuse, mm. um, that you you learn that what other people say doesn't 
stick and you've got to believe in yourself because no one else will if you don't. So I guess that gives you a little bit of background. So how did the founders extract themselves in the finish then? Well, we sold to ING. They wanted 100% buyout, right. so the founders had to uh, sell, had to sell, um, right. in order to make that transaction happen. Right. Um, none of us wanted to sell um, that early, but that's the way it went. Um, and then remain employed, actually, right. um, with no ties, so I didn't have to, but um, I enjoyed running the company. I enjoyed right. continuing to be able to build our dream. Um, you know, you earn a fair amount when you're at that level anyway, right. and we certainly banked um, some profit. Um, in terms of nowhere near as much as, you know, you would have had uh, 10 or 20 years, but certainly something that um, puts ba- uh, money in the bank and allows you to, you know, r- get rid of your debt and, and live fairly comfortably. Exactly. Mm. Until you start it all over again and you put everything you own back in your new business. And then you start all yeah, over again. Right. You? So, so how did that come about? I mean, um, again, that's a funny story. Um, Chris and uh, Richard Kuhn, um Fast forward, they'd done a couple of businesses in between times and they looked at the market and could see that, um, you know, ANZ had bought out um, ING um, and AMP was going to buy AXA and suddenly the market was changing again. And they and were away at some distance they, they, away long, from Sovereign. A long uh, time. Yes. They'd done two or three businesses in the meantime. Right. So they, and they could see that um, regulations were coming. So there was going to be supervision of life insurance companies in a licensing regime, which hadn't existed previously. So you had this window before the regime came in to become an existing player so that you could transition. And if you didn't get in before then, who knows how long it would take for the Reserve Bank to figure out what requirements it would have of a startup life insurance company, if ever, right. if you could ever do that. So <laughs> it's kind of like if you're going to start another one, you've got this window to do it. The market is perfect to do it. It's a perfect time to do it. And Naomi, there's only one person that finances and reinsurers will back to start a life insurance company, and that's you. Because you've, you've done it before. Twice, and the only one <laughs> who's done it before. And I was running this family business going, go away, this is what I want to do. Just, go, I'm sure you're right, but I'm not interested. Was it a small family advisory business? It wasn't that small. It was, we, we had about 12 staff. Um, oh. It wasn't that small, but it was still in that, because we were doing spread commissions, it was still in that, using all our capital up to fund the upfront costs, right? right. And it takes three years or so before those cash flows start coming through. And we had a funding line with the bank, which we'd lined up, which required our insurance providers to guarantee that they would buy back the renewal stream if we defaulted on the loan. It was a no-brainer. Every one of the insurance companies signed it, except for our main provider, which happened to be ING, who was also the company that I'd worked for and built. Right. Um, And they didn't sign it. The bank pulled the the funding line. Um, Now... We could have continued to fund it ourselves, but I was so damn angry. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris and Ian were so forceful in terms of, you know, Naomi, you, you don't know what sort of an opportunity we're about to miss and we need you and you need to do this. So I kind of went, okay, if I do that, then we have to buy this business because the minute I move into a com- competitor for all those other insurance companies that we've got agency, they're going to pull the agency. So. Um this business is gone, all these 12 staff, everything is gone. So provided we buy that into this new business, there's a whole bunch of intellectual property we developed around training advisors, which we still use today, by the way. Right. So um, so there was a value to the business in buying it and a client base, which right. we then ultimately could sell to someone else and, right. uh, and earn some money. So if you do that, then I'm, then I'm in. Um, and that's how we got started. And, and, the, and the cornerstone um, investor again, uh, yourselves and... 
uh, uh, Chris and, and Richard Coon, right. friends and family. Right. Um, um, so, you know, all the people that had backed them in previous businesses that they'd done and backed me in previous it's businesses. It's like a public unlisted company in some it ways. It was really it? very much like that. Right. And very sort of, you know, um, uh, friends and family investor base, really, right. until you grow. Uh, and then you need to bring in serious money. When you sat down and thought about it, I mean, you must have defined pretty clearly again the yes, target market absolutely. and the key advantages. What were you gunning for? Yeah, well, I know a lot more this time than I did <laughs> when I started previously, um, both in terms of how to what capital you need, how to go and acquire that capital, um, what reinsurers are looking for, et cetera, what actuarial numbers should look like, what advisors need in order to sell. For example, in Club Life, we invented new product, right. which is now standard product in the whole industry across here and Australasia, but no one had ever heard about it in those days. And that length of time it took advisors to truly get to grips with something that was way better than what they were already selling, but they didn't understand it, right. um, taught us that give them what they know, just make it as good as it can be. So we launched this company with, we're going to be the best feature and benefit in every product, no matter which way you look, because we've done in our advice practice extensive market research, every feature and benefit in every product. So we were able to take that <laughs> and create product off the back of that. So if you're coming out to the market to advisors and go, everything you know about product is in this product. Everything you like about any product is in this product. You don't have to think about it. You've got no risk that anyone's going to criticise you. And it's really hard to sell against because if you sell against it, you've got to justify why you took a worse product for your client. Right now, you've got a conflict of interest. might be commission, it might be trip, but whatever, it's not going to be good for you, right? right. Um, and that's exactly what happened. We just got, before we opened for business, before we'd launched the product, before we even had a quote to quote the premium or any forms, we were getting application forms from other people with other people's quotes and application forms and with the name crossed out and partner's life written on it and the advisor's saying, we trust you, we know you, we loved what you did, we understand that this will be better than what they've already got. These clients, have, we've talked to them about they want to come with you. So when you're ready, this is a, your first application. We had so many first applications. So we were on the roadshow launching the product at night at, during the day. And at night, I was up till two, three, four o'clock in the morning underwriting applications that were coming in on other people's forms so that the minute we opened the doors for business, we already had this huge pipeline ready to be issued. It was That's quite unbelievable. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. And, and of course, once we start launching it and talking to people about it and they were able to go and say, have you got this and have you got that? And we were able to go, yes, 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 in every case. Uh, the, flood, the floodgates just opened. So I talked to you about a million dollars in the first year in club life, then we guesstimated we'd do five million in our first year which is a five-fold increase on the most recent startup company because we had a different strategy and we did $23 million, 23 million. In, in our first year. And we now write sort of $44 million a year. It's incredible, isn't it, rates. really? Incredible yeah. success story. Absolutely. If you, if you look back on it and you said, what's the one feature? I mean, obviously you built a reputation that people yes. prepared to back, both yes. financially and otherwise. Yeah. But how much of that came from the actual advisors on the ground who you focused on at the very beginning? I would say nearly all of it. Right. We had to capture their hearts and minds. They have long-term experience with me um, from the sovereign days all the right. way through. So they know that whatever I say I do, if I make a mistake, I say sorry, that we involve them in the decisions and discussions that they still call me if they think that they've got a problem. Even to the extent where they'll call me because they're in front of a, an influential client and it adds mana to their 
process that they've got a direct line to the CEO. And do you take those calls? Of course I do. These people are my customers. I am there to serve them. That's the distinct difference. It's not about me. It's about them. And I'm just another cog in the wheel in terms of helping them to do their job. And we need to earn that business. And part of that is me needs to earn that business. So I think that's one of the differences. But it also... So they have they feel safe and uh, I guess safe in my hands, and that's when I say my, I mean my company's hands and the people who work for me, right. who obviously have that same culture. Right. Um, so it's quite a unique culture, isn't it? And and you've focused a fair bit on building this culture, yeah. haven't you? Uh, yeah. Are there some sort of cornerstone things that you drive into the culture that you talk to people about? Yeah. Well, the, well, the first one is the customer comes first. That's easy thing, right? If you've got the right value proposition for the customer, it fixes all the conduct issues that anyone can throw at you. It, it fixes the conduct issues that someone might try. I mean, if an advisor's selling for you because they like your trip, it doesn't matter because the client's got the right outcome, right? <laughs> there isn't a better outcome for the client. So we've got the client's back as the is the principle of all of the companies um, that we've started from, right? That's We've got the client's back and, uh, and by default, you end up with the advisor's back. Um, And that's, like I said, it's easy to sell and hard to sell against, so for a distribution force. Um, So if you start with that, A, your your staff truly love the company they work for because when they're in claims, when they're in underwriting, where there's a decision to make, you find a favour with the client, right? You just err on the side of the client. It's a very easy It's a very easy place to work and it makes you like what you do um, and feel proud of what you do. So we have a claims review committee. It takes all of the claims that look like they should be declined from the claims team before they are allowed to make a decision. It has to come to the claims review committee whose sole job is to find a way to make a no into a yes, to justify how we could justify this no into a yes. And probably 40% of the cases, we find a way of doing that, a justification for why that's an okay decision to make. That's all of those claims would be a no otherwise in other companies. And the the products you've got, what's the mix of products look like today? So again, we're a complete risk insurer. So we do life, TPD, disability, uh, disability income, mortgage repayment, health insurance, trauma insurance. Mm. And we have a whole range of new products that we've um, also uh, created and launched out to the marketplace Mm. that have now also become uh, copied uh, by competitors. So, um, and we're constantly looking for why do, why do people not buy products. Who doesn't buy these products? Is it lower socioeconomic? Is it blue collar workers? Because they, the product names are difficult or the concepts are too complex or, you know, the sums seem too large. And how do we develop something that's, that speaks immediately, instantly to that client about what it is and why it's there and what it does for them? So, um, and it creates and widens our market. So that's the growth for us. It's not how do we take more market share off our competitors? It's how do we find more clients? Mm. And how do we actually think about the that's customer? Right. Exactly campaign. right. In things like a major exercise like the Christchurch earthquake, for yes. example, do you get affected by that? Does... Well, we do. It, really interesting. Not so much in death claims or, dis, you know, the, in the scheme of things, right. the number of people who are injured or, or died spread amongst all of the insurance companies is a relatively tiny Quite blip. low, isn't it? Yes. But what you get is you get stress claims right. um, and you get people out of work so they can't pay their premiums um, and don't know when they're going to be able to pay their premiums. So for us, we we already have some protections built into our products anyway to help 
people through difficult times, so grief and et cetera, where we take the premium strain off the, t- the table. So forget about the payments of claims. There's some other support benefits that we have. We can give them a premium holiday or put their premium on suspension if they're going overseas and they want to keep the insurance when they come back, but they can't afford to pay while they're out. We've right. got some anyway. So that logically fits with when the Christchurch earthquakes happen. Any clients that are out of work, well, don't pay your premiums. We'll keep you covered until you are settled and back to work. We had a number of stress claims because people were shocked, you know, and so you just pay them, right? There's no arguments about does this meet a definition or have you got the right doctor or whatever. You just step in and you you take the risk so they don't have a risk. They know you're you're there. Currently the mybovis, you know, the microbovis or whatever it's called, the farming issue for farmers who, you know, have, have lost massive amounts of income. Farm owners who don't have redundancy protection because you don't get redundant when you own the farm, right? How do we support them so their insurance cover stays in place without them having to worry about the money, et cetera? So it all fits with that. We put the customer first. And once we've got them, we want to be there all the way through till they need us. Or hopefully they never need us and we've been there the whole of their life. Quite an interesting philosophy, isn't it? Because yeah. you've, you've really gone beyond what you'd expect in a, in a sort of a, um, a formulated corporate approach. And you're saying everything's individual here and we'll look at these things. Uh, absolutely. So we have built some things into our policy weddings, um, which is no one else has ever done. And it's the way I've always behaved and run my companies. But we... We contractually obligated it because what I recognised is when I'd sold and moved out of those two companies, maybe the behaviour changed towards customers. And these were customers who came on board 10 years ago when it was me and the advisors were telling them this is who this company is and now it's a different company, right? And they can't go anywhere because their health has changed. They're stuck with that insurance company and it ain't the same. So we thought long after we're all gone, this client who's buying today will have these protections built into their contract. So we, we've got fair and reasonable treatment of non-disclosure. Basically says if we find at claim time that you didn't tell us everything you should have at application time, the law says we can bye-bye, just walk away, even if it's not relevant to the claim and even if it wouldn't have meant we didn't give you insurance. As long as it would have been material to a decision, we can walk away legally. Um, and we went, that's just so not fair. What we want to do is go back and say, well, if we knew this at the time, what would we have done? Would you have still taken that? That's exactly right. Mm. And then we make that decision and then we roll forward. And 50% of the time, nothing happens to the claim. We might add another exclusion for something else that we didn't know about. Uh, so we're not going to, but for this claim, it makes no difference. The other half of the time, it might affect the claim, but they're still covered. Right. Right. And that claim they would never have had in the first place had we had the full information. So we bend over backwards to put them in the same position rather than give us an out. And it's contractual in our policy wordings. And to the layman, they won't know that that's of value. But to the advisor, they absolutely understand it because they've been there on both ends and they realise the difference. And they've caught the flack, I suspect, at times. Exactly. Exactly. So how... Has this influenced other companies to to look at the way in which you're operating? It certainly has. So the thing I'm most proud of is not the success of our business. Obviously, I'm enormously proud of that. But from um, my place in the world, 
New Zealand life insurance industry is very good. <laughs> the companies are, by and large, very good. Occasionally, some of them don't necessarily behave the way I would if I was running that company around a claim or a, right. a situation. But by and large, it's an industry we should be incredibly proud of in New Zealand for the good that we do and the way in which we behave, the, insurance, the life insurance right. industry. And that's been driven by competition. Mm. Yeah, and I've been the competition. You've been the competition. Yeah, and so th- I know I'm not loved by a lot of people. I, they fr- I frustrate them. A lot of people who've never met me have all sorts of opinions about me because it's easier to form that opinion about me than to compete with me. Right. Um, and I'm okay with that because, um, you know, you're talking about me and I'm talking about me and everybody's talking about me and it's all good, right? right. Um, and I know who I am, so mud don't stick, you but know. you're almost talking about a corporate social responsibility that you wouldn't normally associate with an insurance or finance company. Although that is... In the end, exactly what we do. Right. We are the ultimate of corporate social responsibility, especially in life insurance. We do good things for people at really bad times. And we promise them something and then hopefully don't fulfill that promise for years. So we've got this responsibility to keep them. And if you think that way, you keep them. And keeping clients in insurance is what gives you those cash flows that I talked about before. So you cannot run, I don't think, a long-term successful life insurance company that reaps the benefits, the future benefits that I talked about, if you don't behave in this way. Um, And, you know, the fact that Sovereign and OnePath and our partner's life have all been so successful for so long says that is true. It's all come from the one person, though. It hasn't all started in the one area. Well, one person doesn't make this happen. One person can have this heart and soul, but you need to imbue it and you need to recruit people around you that also, they don't do it the same way as you, but they do it from the same place as you. So you've bred a generation of people thinking along those lines, do yeah. you think? I think I've, I think I've allowed people to do what comes naturally right. to most people, which is right. to want to do the right thing. So where does the company go from here? I mean, what share have you got market-wise now, roughly, ballpark? Um, so we're... Uh, but we, we vacillate between number one and number two for new business um, market share, um, sort of late 20% of right. um, new business market share for new business. We're obviously younger. So in terms of Enforce work, we're about the same size as most companies. Sovereign is much larger, especially the Sovereign and AIA joining together. Right. But we're rapidly um, catching up on that in terms <laughs> of Enforce book. So we think that there's still significant growth to come, in particular around customers that don't buy or buy from banks by default because it's the only person selling them insurance because advisors may not and be... got to have it for a purpose like That's a mortgage, right. etc. That's yeah. right. Because ultimately they may not be getting the best product mix for them because they haven't had any advice to understand whether what the choices are. So we think that there's growth for us in that space. Um, We think there's growth in the space of, like I said, customers who aren't well served by the products, the traditional products and the traditional distribution methods. And I mean, advisor's not going to go and sell somebody a $20 a month policy. He's selling $200, $300 a month policy. So how do we get the $20 a month policy? Because those people are just as valid clients for us um, as anyone else. We also think that there is a whole world out there. And as I said, the New Zealand industry is really good. We can lead the rest of the world because the rest of the world is not so necessarily good. There's parts of the world where there are huge profits, which means customers are being really badly treated. Um, We've seen some of that fallout in Australia. Right. Other parts of the world where insurers are struggling to make money because they're big and old and, you know, when we would bring a, a completely fresh perspective. So I just think the world's our oyster. So where honest. do you go from here in this? I mean, where's your next step over the next few years? Um, we plan for an IPO. 
um, in the next couple of years, which is the exit strategy for your cornerstone investors, your equity investors, and also your early investors that came on board and might be wanting to see some cash. So the early out. investors are still there, but the yes, equity investors, is a couple that have come in more recently, That's isn't right. there? That's right. Um, and we imagine more will come in through an IPO, actually, right. but it gives you a liquidity um, opportunity and an ability to raise capital as you need it right. um, if you want to go offshore or acquire someone else or whatever. So that's what we're, we're targeting. Um, I, for my sins, am most likely <laughs> going to need to stay through that process. You'll be bound into it, I'm that's sure. That's right. They, that, that's exactly right. So. I don't think you'd get an investor to buy, would no. you, unless they wanted to bind you into it? Yeah, that, that, mm. I mean, I think that that is true, and, and you, you just have to accept that. that. That's you? exactly right. And I, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid fifties, but I still feel exactly the same as I always have. Where do you get this enormous energy from? Because you've got um, these people ring you probably to all hours of the night and day, and yeah. people like me imposing on you on top of it. So where do you get the energy from? I love what I do. Um, and I mostly love when a client contacts us desperately grateful that we just did what we said we would when they paid us to do it, right? right? Um, and you have no... They, you get that feedback. I do. And, you know, when they buy it, they don't want it. They don't think they need it. They think they're being ripped off. They think it's way too expensive. They don't think it's ever going to happen to them. Uh, and some advisor has convinced them to, A, take it, and then, B, take it with us, right? So there's a lot of uh, resentment, um, right. I guess, in the lead-up to people buying insurance products. And then when it does what it's meant to do and they realise how desperate they would have been without it, they are desperately thankful that we made them do something they didn't want to do and then they become your best advocates um, and that just it's almost like um, social good you know that you get your your do good feeling out of that and you're running a business um, so for me I it just gets me out of bed every morning how can we do more of this well we talk about passion of course when we talk about leaders great leaders I remember a man called J.A.C. Brown talking about passion being just simply insanity in the appropriate direction. <laughs> and I suspect that's a term we could almost adequately apply, isn't it? Um, yeah. So have you got another sort of, you know, where's family fit in this and have you got other sort of goals that you, you want to achieve? I absolutely do. So um, it's funny, Peter's my brother. He's a founder of um, Partners Life as well as having been there uh, in club life. I have uh, my son working in the business, my daughter-in-law working in the business. I have uh, brother-in-law, sister, two sister-in-laws, nephews, second cousins, you know, and we also have a whole bunch of other staff who have family members working in our business. So it's very much a family-oriented business. So there's never any been any difference between family and work for me. It's just my life and it all has to have that same heart. Um, so, um, and, you know, my son, I'm incredibly proud of him. He's doing incredibly well in his career. He's much smarter than me. So, you know, we have some interesting debates and often he's right, damn it. Um, but Is he an actuary? No, he's not. Well, he's, thank goodness for that because no. I'm told they've all had personality bypasses. So. <laughs> Except for us, <laughs> I have to say. Um, but, and, and, and in fact, that's not true. Uh, a lot of the most wonderful people in our business are also actuaries. A lot of the people who founded businesses mm. are actuaries. They were brave enough to take that risk and that's not something you normally associate with. With an actuary. With an actuary, but, it's, mm. but it is true. But mm. um, And also, as I said, I, our actuary is just, uh, he could be the CEO in terms of his knowledge of the business and his cultural But you could impact. easily describe this as a business with a conscience, couldn't you? Yeah. Mm. yeah well, I, I don't think you can have a business that doesn't have a conscience and be long-term successful. Oh, right. You can make a lot of money in the short term, maybe, not in our business, mm. um, but in the end, it catches up with you. So how are you viewed in the industry today? 
Um, I think I'm respected, uh, maybe loved by a number of people and hated equally by people who don't know me Mm. um, uh, and are frustrated by me. Um, So I've had a lot of words I've heard people say about me like I'm the ultimate capitalist, um, (laughs) as if that's an insult. I'm Um, not quite sure what that means. I have no idea, but it was used as an insult, you know, that that I just start and um, um, build businesses, strip all the profits out and then leave it to fall over, which is also, there's no proof of that. What what do you mean? Um, You know, and, um, you know, I've been in this business for 35 years. If you have sins, they're there for all to see. If you've done bad things, it's there for everybody to see. So there's nothing, right? And I wouldn't live with myself. Uh, You you make mistakes. You you make mistakes. You're not God's gift to the universe. But if the heart is in the right place, I think people forgive you for that. Um, And they have some respect for you for picking yourself up and admitting it was a problem and and Mm. moving on. So, Do you get young women calling you yes. saying you're the role model for I how do. do I do this? I do and I get asked to speak at enormous numbers of businesswomen's um, meetings etc um, just to, to, to talk about taking those risks and and backing yourself and how you juggle that family and how you cope with the sort of mm. the negative the unconscious bias towards women um, and um, and all of those sorts of things and I love doing that I love being able to say, this is where I've arrived. I had all those insecurities. I had all that treatment, right? But sitting here now, these are the things that I would have told myself in those days, right? right? And and one of them, for example, is there's no right parenting. I see, you know, someone attacking early childcare and saying, you know, parents who put their kids in a... Like, for God's sakes, there is no rule book. No one has ever parented the same one generation to the next, one culture to the next, etc. There's no right way. If you love your children and you make sure they're physically safe and you, then in the end, it's the end result. Who they turn out to be determines whether you were right or wrong. And I look at my son and I go, I rock as a mum. Right. I would never <laughs> have thought about that or right. maybe necessarily believed that during the during the journey. Right. But the end result is a healthy, happy, well-adjusted, confident man I win, right, in terms of parenting. So I wouldn't give people that. Whatever you do to support yourself, to follow a career, if that's what you want, and be a parent, is right. Right. So what's left in the bucket list? I have spent many years observing people and their behaviour and watching with so much, um, I guess, sadness, people, and it's mostly men, but it's people reaching sort of my age and being deeply disappointed that their life didn't plan out the way that they expected it to, maybe marriage failures or the career hasn't reached the pinnacle that they expected. And in men's case, often commit suicide. Mm. And I've had the privilege of working and and employing huge numbers of people over that period of time. So you get that microcosm of that behaviour. And I've seen it. Everybody can see the particular behavioural traits that are the reason why people get held back or those things happen to them. Right. And yet they don't seem to see it themselves. And so I started to wonder why that was. And and, and I've, in a nutshell, I've created a course on character and on behaviours, so habitual behaviours, and what you might be trying to achieve by behaving in that way, which you learnt as a kid based on this audience and maybe based on this kind of background and what you're actually getting for most audiences. Right. And, and if you want to change it, how you can change it. Um, so the, the practices of changing behaviours. 
protecting them from, it's not about who you are, it's about what you do and say. That's what a behaviour is, right? Right. Um, So you can change that. Um, And it challenges cultural norms and even religious things and says you're an adult now. You don't have to behave that way anymore. You've got to choose how you want to behave and it's okay to, you know, to not do what your parents thought you should do. It's not, you know, because you're an adult now. Um, So I built that. I've been doing it for Rotary Youth Leaders Association and I uh, awards and I thought for three years they asked me to come and deliver it and I get huge positive feedback. So I've been practicing it. I built it and then I've been practicing it. And what I found is actually young, smart people who are already on their way are a fantastic audience for these messages. Right. Uh, They love it. They absolutely love it. After every time I speak, someone will come up to me and go, you were talking about me when you no, I didn't write the course for you. I didn't meet you when I wrote right. the course. But what it speaks to me is there's a lot of people that are trapped in behaviours and they don't realise the reaction they're getting and they don't know, or even if they do, they don't know how to get out of it. And so I know that there are legs in this. Uh, and so I've found what I need to do next. Which is the mentoring, That's obviously. Right. That's exactly people. right. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm comfortable and content that I will be comfortable to leave this organisation at the right time for the organisation rather than clinging to it because it is who I see myself as being. Um, so I, I, and I, don't, I didn't consciously want to try to find that. It found me, um, but I've, I have it. I've no doubt that'll be worth watching. Naomi Valentine, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for joining me and my guest in this high-altitude conversation. If you enjoyed the show, Please share this with your C-suite colleagues and rate the show on iTunes if you will. In the meantime, go well.